this gospel, this good news is proclaimed. Right. Well, let's bring it back together. And if you are able, I'm going to be that guy. If you're in the back, feel free to scoot on forward. You know, I'll be that guy. Feel free to scoot on forward. Come on in. You don't have to, but I'll throw it out there. Okay. Well, good morning. <laughs> My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here. And uh, it's been a pretty crazy week in a lot of ways. And so I just want to open us up here and, and kind of reset us with a little bit of prayer. Okay? So let me pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your church. Thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for, for the ways that you love us, you care for us. Thank you for your word. May you open our eyes to the truth of your word. May you enlighten our minds. May you stir our hearts and empower our bodies to know you more, to follow you more for our great joy and your good glory. And all these things, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> something fun, actually you heard my kids screaming as they were leaving, but um, something fun with my kids that happened this last week is we got to bring them to their first Royals game, uh, which was really fun. It was Wednesday, uh, so it was one of the few games that the Royals have won. So it was really, really fun. Uh, and my kids, they have trouble like just focusing even on a TV show, but while we were there, they were zoned in. Like Israel, my son, just watched the pitcher throw the ball to the catcher, watch it hit. He was just, for the whole time, we were there way past their bedtime, and uh, we paid for it the next day. But it was great. It was great. And while I was there, I started remembering just some of my earliest days in baseball. I mean, look at that guy, huh? Oh, yeah, that always works. But listen, <clears throat> that kid had no idea what was in store. I worked so hard as a kid. I remember having like this disciplined regimen. I was the kind of kid who like put a cereal in a bowl and stuck it in the fridge so it'd be ready for you the next morning. I did that the night. I was weird, okay? Somebody actually came up to me after second service and said, I did that too. I was like, you're weird too. Um, but while I was thinking about that, I worked so hard. I remember being so disciplined, but I still was just never that good of a baseball player. Like no matter... No matter how hard I tried, I just really wasn't the, that great at the game. But there was this one kid named Aaron. He was the coach's kid. And he, he was always, I, I just thought he was so lazy. He never helped clean up any of the equipment afterwards. He always threw tantrums like during practice and during the game. But man, as soon as the game started, even amidst his tantrums, he was one of the best baseball players I just remember on the team. It like something clicked. He was a brilliant first baseman. When he got up to bat, he would always walk away with at least a double. I mean, the kid was great. He was the kind of kid that all the other kids were like, I'm going to play like Aaron. Like, I'm going to get the chance when I practice. Maybe I can hit like Aaron, get just a smidge of that spotlight that Aaron gets. And I remember there would even be times, you know, you're in the middle of the game and you're cheering for your team and Aaron would be up to bat and he'd have two strikes. And I remember thinking, oh, I want him to strike out. <laughs> and not, I mean, and it gets worse. Not just like that I'd want him to strike out, but I, I wanted like on that third strike for him to be so committed and to swing with such intensity that he'd like fall over and that the crowd would like laugh and point at him. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was terrible. And I was eight years old. Um, so that was kind of scary. But whether, listen, whether you're eight years old or whether you're 68 years old, We've all had those moments, haven't we? Whether it's at a family reunion, or you're at work, or you're at happy hour with some friends, and you have that one friend that keeps telling you about yet another promotion opportunity they got. And it's at that moment where you see something excellent 
and someone else. And it makes you feel inadequate. And it makes you then feel angry. And not angry at life, but at them. At them. Today we're going to be talking about the infamous green-eyed monster, the vice of envy, and its corresponding virtue of kindness. Now, envy is its more wicked cousin of jealousy and covetousness. Covetousness is wanting something that someone else has, right? I, I want what you have. There, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's spouse, right? This is part of the Ten Commandments. But envy is worse. If you can't get what they have, envy is content enough if nobody else can have it. Envy is content even with the have-not as long as the people that have it don't get it either. Jealousy is a little bit different as well. Jealousy is kind of this overprotective nature over something you feel like you own and it's being threatened or about to be taken away. Whereas envy is the realm of have-nots. You have nothing to lose, not even dignity itself. Basically, you could say envy is this. It's feeling bitter when others have it better. It's feeling bitter when others have it better. Joseph Epstein, uh, a famous writer, once said this about envy. He says, of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. <laughs> only envy, though, right? The rest of them, they got a little bit of fun in there, but not envy, and yet it still lures us in. There's something about it. It's so subtle in its corruption and so significant in our moral decline. And this is the way all of the vices work in our lives. And we're going to continue to see that as we continue through our series of vices and virtues. Vices, they're not the worst thing you can do in the world at that particular moment. Instead, vices are kind of like these habits that we often think are kind of harmless in the background. If left unchecked, will actually lead to your own death, to the death of relationships, and even the death of a community. But what we discovered last week when we started this series is that does not have to be your story. In Jesus, we can become better. And we're given two options in life. We can either allow the inertia of life to build us and bring us and push us towards vice and its destruction, or we can listen to the Apostle Peter like we saw last week and make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, to work towards virtue, to extremely exert yourself towards virtue because there is no neutral ground. And this morning, I think you're here. I think there's a part in every one of our hearts this morning that we want to become better. We want to make every effort in that vein. So with that in mind, we're going to do a deep dive into envy, okay? We're going to see what it looks like, where it leads us, and then ultimately how to get rid of it altogether. And as I was thinking about envy, I couldn't think of a better place to see what envy looks like than in the story of Joseph. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 3. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 31, page number 31. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold. 
We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Hmm. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. That hmm isn't in the text. That was just me adding, just to be clear. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's return to verse 4 here. We get an exceptional view of what envy looks like. Verse 4. When his brother saw that their father loved him more. Say the word more. More. Than his brothers, they hated him. Now, more can be a good word. When it comes to ice cream, it's a good word. But in many ways, more is a very dangerous word. Especially when more is how we see others. When we think, whether it's right or a misperception, that someone is receiving more love than us, we can quickly jump to the idea that we are less lovable or worthy of less love. That's the danger of more. And this is where envy starts. You see, envy looks like an inferiority complex. It looks like an inferiority complex. I mean, sure, envy has to do with other people, but it isn't ultimately about other people. Instead, envy is rooted in how we see ourselves, or better yet, what we don't see in ourselves or in our lives that we wish was there. So when the brothers saw how their father loved Joseph, right? They, his father gave Joseph this Armani coat while the rest of them are going to Walmart. And they're all wondering, what in the world is going on? Our dad loves Joseph more. And they begin to define their self-worth based upon whether they're better or equal to others. And when you live your life based upon comparison, listen here, every day is a trial. And the result of that trial feels like life or death. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, I think she says it best when she writes, the bottom line for the envious is how they stack up against others because they measure their self-worth comparatively. Comparatively. So right now in my house, um, we love princesses. Uh, <laughs> And that's not because I love princesses. Let's just be, be clear. I've got a daughter. Just the, the, maybe that goes without saying, but I'm going to say it just because this gets recorded. Now, <clears throat> we've got tiaras. We've got crowns. We've got princess dresses. We've got jewels. We've got scepters. And of course, we talk about the fairy tales of the princesses all the time in our house. I have to read like two or three of those stories before my daughter's willing to go to bed. But listen, one thing I've discovered after reading these stories over and over and over again, um, is that uh, being a princess doesn't come without its challenges, right? I mean, being a princess is tough too. Like, you just never know. There might be a prince who, who needs to get up into your tower by climbing your hair. There, there, you may be a princess who has to live with 12 guys who've had, who have personality disorders, like Snow White, right? And when you get to this, envy is everywhere. It's everywhere. Snow White, she's poisoned. Why? Because of her unparalleled beauty. 
Cinderella, she's ostracized. Why? Because of her unparalleled charm. And as much as I want to try to find virtue, you know, and, and, and resonate with Snow White <laughs> or cheer on Cinderella, I, I much more am tempted to be like Lady Tremaine and her two daughters, the stepmom and stepsisters of Cinderella, or even the wicked queen who comes offering an apple to destroy her competition, Snow White. And I'll digress on the Disney illustrations here for a bit because some of you have already had too much. But listen, this isn't just the stuff of fairy tales. The reason it shows up in fairy tales, the reason we see this in the historical account here in Genesis and the record of Joseph's life is because this is the stuff that still tempts us to this day. And so I want to start off with a little reflection this morning and I want to ask us a question, a question for you to think over for the next couple seconds. How would you answer this question? Where are you playing the comparison game? Where are you playing the comparison game? And to be clear, to know whether you're playing the game or not, you've got to understand the rules, right? The comparison game, you don't play the comparison game with someone who is way, way, way out of your league. Just because I love running, I'm not defining how good of a runner I am based upon, you know, a comparison to an Olympic gold medalist runner. That's ridiculous. Instead, what we do in everyday life is we play the comparison game with people who are in close proximity and who are our peers. So for example, we play the comparison game with friends who have similar income potential or maybe graduated in the same class from college as we did. And looking back a few years, we start to now assess whether we've done a good enough job, whether we're worthwhile, whether we have enough self-worth based upon how we stack up against them. When you become a parent, you, be, you begin to envy or you begin to compare how other parents are supposedly parenting their children, at least in the public sphere. And you begin to even envy for your kids. And you begin to play this comparison game with your kids. It may be a comparison game with coworkers who are in a similar field in your work. It may be siblings. You grew up in the same household. You had similar values, and yet so-and-so always receives the praise, or I'm always the laughing saw. How does that work itself out for you? Where are you playing this comparison game? It's usually the people who are too close for comfort. Those are the ones that we begin to evaluate our self-worth based upon. And so I want you to think about it. Where are you playing this comparison game? Who are you measuring yourself up against so that you can feel like you're enough? Because listen, envy starts here in the hiddenness of our hearts and it feels a bit harmless at first, but it never stops there. So let's go ahead and move to see where envy leads, where envy leads. Look again here at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Jump down to verse 8 after Joseph tells him about the dreams he had. It says that so they, the brothers, hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And here's what we come to understand. Envy always leads to hatred. And it's always personal. It comes with a name and it comes with a face. That is the object. Envy is not abstract, but it lands squarely on someone who's in close proximity to us or has some level of peer relationship to us. And if you continue to define your self-worth based upon comparison, eventually you'll find yourself lacking. And someone will become the object 
of your hatred. And it can even shape the whole way you see the world. Jesus talks about envy by describing it as the evil eye. The evil eye. Such that when you see the world, there's, there's only two camps. It's a zero-sum view of the world. Either something happens for their good or it happens for your good, but never both. And everything comes down to competition. It all comes about survival. This comparison game becomes a game of competition for your own self-worth, your own survival, your own life. And the allure of envy, oh, it is so mischievous in that its allure comes with this skewed perspective of justice. Suddenly we start thinking, well, two wrongs really do make a right. The allure of justice, or the allure of envy, rather, is this skewed perspective of justice. What do I mean? Look at Joseph's story. Jacob was not a good parent. Let's be very clear. His favoritism is awful and very destructive for this family. Giving someone basically this Armani coat and saying, well, isn't that nice what I gave him, but you guys aren't worth it, destroys and really is very destructive for a family. Joseph was pretty arrogant and very loudmouthed. I mean, you don't just go walking around and saying, hey, I just had this dream that all of you guys are going to be my slaves. That just doesn't go over well with people. And yet... The brother's envy is not justified. Just because he is, the brothers have been sinned against doesn't mean their envy is justified. But envy, it, it, it takes justice and it skews it and it says, yeah, 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 but look at all these things. This is worthwhile. This is justified the way that I feel. The hate feels natural. It feels justified. And that is the mischievous nature of sin. And it's so subtle how it begins to dominate our lives. Look with me here again at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and look here, and could not speak peacefully to him. You see, envy, it starts in the heart, but its first move isn't actually to make us active in our aggression and in our hatred. The first move that envy makes out of the heart is to silence us. It's to keep us quiet. How many of you remember growing up and hearing, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? And in one sense, our world would be a lot better place if a lot more people said a lot less stuff. I get that. But as soon as silence becomes less of a tool of self-control to love the other and more a manipulative tool to inflict indirect hostility, then we begin to see the fruit of envy. The fruit of something that will slowly destroy you from the inside out. And I think this, honestly, in middle class America, this is where envy strikes most. In this passive aggressive form. Passive aggressive. You know, we, we know this all too well, don't we? It's, it's conveniently forgetting to tell a coworker that you're competing against, that the deadline for a project has changed. And as soon as they ask you about it, you say, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to tell you. And through a grin, you can cut and you can draw blood. Passive aggressive, we know this well. You consistently show up late to meetings. And as soon as this boss that you have this chip on your shoulder says, where were you? You say, well, if I didn't have so much to do, I would have been here on time. I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? No. It's another indirect form of hostility through even a smile and even a look of false guilt. Passive aggressive. It's playing the silent, or, you know, giving the silent treatment. And then as soon as somebody comes up and says, hey, what's going on? You blow up and you say, what did I do wrong this time? 
Well, you know, silence wasn't actually a neutral stance. It was a form to hurt. And passive-aggressive in middle-class America is one of our primary tools to attack each other. And it's often driven by envy and then leading to hate and showing itself and not being able to speak peacefully to one another. And trust me, you're not fooling anyone. <laughs> this disguise, it just, it bleeds through because, listen, envy and hatred and hated acts, even with the veil of goodness, it always leaks through. People can always see through it, and you just look desperate. And the reality is, you are desperate. You're trying to measure up to someone else because you're finding your identity in comparison. And if you can't build yourself up, you'll do your best to tear everyone else down around you. And it just builds a toxic environment and you start asking, why don't people want to be with me? Why don't people want to have a conversation with me? It might just be envy that slowly eroded the very fabric of your heart. And the thing about envy is that it always takes you, always takes you further than you want to go. You think you're holding the reins and then suddenly you realize that's turned into chains. And you're being pulled by envy rather than trying to steer it yourself. Look with me here at verse 12. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And, and Jacob, or Israel, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. Jump down to verse 18. And Joseph's brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. And that's another thing that envy does. Suddenly, you stop seeing that person as a brother, as another human being, and they just begin to embody the one thing you wished you had that you don't. You notice that? They can't even call him brother. Here comes this dreamer. And keep reading on. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what become of his dreams. And what happens? We do see that Joseph isn't murdered, but he's sold into slavery. And it tears this family apart. Reuben is so broken up, one of the brothers, that he rips his clothes as a sign of grief. And brothers are mourning brothers. A father spirals into depression. And this family is left in chaos. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. And you'll stop at nothing, even the destruction of your own soul, in order to destroy the one that you envy. You know, Victor Hugo, he has this brilliant poem uh, called Envy and Avarice. And in it, envy is promised. It's, it's promised, hey, you can have anything you want in the world, envy, but your enemy will get twice as much. And so how does envy respond? And, and Victor Hugo is just brilliant here. He says, envy at last, the silence broke. And smiling with malignant sneer upon her sister dear, who stood in expectation by ever implacable and cruel, spoke this. I would be blinded in one eye. <laughs> Of all, if you can ask for one thing, but your enemy is going to get twice as much, what's it going to be? Blind me with one eye, and then they'll have no sight at all. Like you have one wish, and you can have anything in the world. And instead, all you want to do is inflict pain on someone else and make sure that their pain is even worse than yours. I can't think of a better definition of envy that leads brothers to sell off a brother 
that leads friends to gossip about a specific friend, that leads coworkers to slander a specific coworker. You see, envy is always personal. It's never abstract. It won't let you stay there. Somebody will become the object of your hatred. And so I want, I want to ask this question this morning to do a little more reflection before we move to action here in a bit. Who in your life is your biggest rival? That when you see, who, who's that person that makes you bitter when you see that they have it better? And we've all got that person. Don't act like you don't. Envy's really good at justifying and saying, no, 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 you're good. That's not what this feeling is over here. But in reality, you're wrestling with some deep envy. Who's that someone you cannot compliment? Because if you compliment them, you feel like it's unjust because you deserved that compliment. Nobody told you that compliment, so why am I going to share that with them? They're my competition. Who's that person you can't speak peacefully to? Who makes you feel bitter when they have it better? And let me ask you, how's that working for you? Is that bringing joy is it bringing life? Is it bringing greater freedom? It may feel harmless. And even the thing about envy is that it always dangles a carrot and says just a little further and then you'll finally feel that satisfaction until it's too far gone and you don't realize it until it's too late, until you've sold your brother into slavery. And maybe you get that. Maybe you get the ugliness of envy. Maybe the spirit is actually spotlighting a name, a face, a heart condition in your own life right now. And you're beginning to see the ugliness of envy. And, and, and listen to me this morning. The good news of this in Christ is that envy doesn't have to have the last word on your life. And so let's look together on how to get rid of envy, to get rid of envy. And, and here it is. If there's one thing you can walk away with this morning, I hope it's this. If you can remember one thing. And honestly, uh, Selena Gomez had it right. <laughs> When she says, kill it with kindness, right? So here's the deal. You kill envy with kindness before it kills you. Kill envy with kindness before it kills you. You notice what I didn't say. I didn't say kill envy and then be kind because there's no neutral ground. You don't just kill envy and then wait to figure out what's next. The natural inertia is to move towards vice, the vice of envy, and there's only one other movement. There's not standing still. It's either moving naturally towards vice or making every effort to move towards virtue. You have to kill envy with kindness, not just kill envy and then move towards kindness. But I also don't want you to think that you just have to try harder to be kind because that's also a nightmare. That doesn't really work all that great. We know our hearts way too well to know that that's the answer. It needs to be something deeper Something bigger than that. So how do we get rid of envy? Here's step one. Embrace God's kindness toward you. Look with me here back at Joseph's story. In Genesis chapter 50, we see Joseph decades later. He actually, he's actually reconciled with his brothers at this point. His brothers have admitted that what they did to Joseph was atrocious. They owned their evil. Joseph forgave them, they reconciled, but now Papa Bear, Jacob, has passed away. 
And, you know, the brothers are freaking out because they're thinking, okay, maybe Joseph just acted like he forgave us to make peace, to so, so on kind of bring a peaceful end to dad while he was still here on earth. But now that he's passed away, now's, now's Joseph's real opportunity to mete out his revenge. And Joseph knows this. And look at how he responds to his brothers here in verse 19 of chapter 50 in Genesis. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. What you did was awful, and it was atrocious. It was genuinely evil. He doesn't call evil good. He calls it evil. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph understands something at the very heart of God's character. He understood that God is unboundingly kind. And his kindness extended to Joseph even in the midst of these great atrocities. Even though he experienced unbelievable betrayal by those, his closest of kin, his family, even though he was literally sold into slavery and spent years as a slave, even though he was falsely accused and went to prison, and like their prisons in ancient Near Eastern Egypt make our prisons look like a walk on the beach. And spent years in there, even though all of that took place. He knew that God in his infinite kindness had allowed bad things to happen for a better good. And I want to say something before your mind jumps anywhere. Nowhere do we see that scripture calls bad things good things. That's not what I'm saying. These were evil and broken and terrible things. It's to say that even when evil things happen because of evil people, God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't overlooked you. It somehow didn't just slip through God's fingers. God is sovereignly good in his kindness. And what we see is that our God's kindness is so great that no evil can have the final word on our life especially on where his kindness is bringing us in the end. This is what the Apostle Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. For all things work together for, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and love him. All things. That doesn't mean that everything is good, but he, he has his kindness as greater than even the greatest of evil things that enter our life. And he can work all of that together for a beautiful tapestry in the end for our good. And Joseph understands that. He understands something so much at the heart of who God is that God loves you unconditionally. Even in the midst of so much atrocity, when evil people are doing evil things towards you, he's not second-guessing God's love towards him. Do you know that you don't have to play the comparison game with God? That he loves you and he's wired you the way that you are. Do you know that each human being is marked with the indelible mark of the image of God. And no one individual carries less or more of the image of God, regardless of your socioeconomic status, race, or gender. God loves you. And you may have heard a thousand different voices from a thousand different people seeking to define your self-worth. You may, may wake up on a regular basis and feel less than but you need to understand that according to God, you are more than worth it. You are more than worth it. And we see that in the gospel account of John, right? While we were yet sinners, while we're enemies of God, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, his most precious son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, 
but actually have everlasting life. And not just life eternal then and there, but life eternal here and now. A life where we are known and know God and know the joy of being unconditionally embraced by him in Jesus. And listen, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know what God says about you over you? When you look at the whole streamline of Scripture, this is what is now true of you as a follower of Jesus. No matter what anybody else says about you, no matter what anybody else thinks about you, no matter even what you think about yourself at times and our own doubts and our own false guilt or even our own self-deprecation. This is what we find when we trust in Jesus. You can now say this, I am a child of God created out of love by God who has been forgiven and redeemed by Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. That is who you are, unconditionally loved, redeemed and forgiven in Jesus, and no one else has a better story or a more predominant story or a more authoritative story over your self-worth. No longer do you need to play the comparison game. You are unconditionally loved by God. And I want us to actually read that together because sometimes we just need to say it. Okay, so the words are up on the screen. I want you to read that with me. This is who you are in Christ. I am a child of God, created out of love by God, who has been forgiven and redeemed by Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And listen, no amount of faithfulness or faithlessness will ever change the position of God's abounding kindness towards you. Nothing. What our faithfulness and faithlessness does do is it changes the disposition with which we now live in light of that love. Whether we receive it or not, whether we live in light of it or not. And that leads us to our second step. Once you've embraced God's kindness towards you, if you want to kill envy with kindness, then you secondly extend God's kindness towards your rivals. Towards your rivals. And listen, this isn't your kindness. This isn't something you've conjured up within yourself. This is what you've received from God. Now you become a conduit for God's kindness to others. And especially the people that you constantly try to define yourself by, by seeing these other people as your rivals. And we see this right here with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 21. I mean, what does Joseph say to his brothers who sold him into slavery, who had just cause to bring legal punishment against them, and being the second most powerful man in the world at the time, had the ability to bring it about? What does he say in response to their fears? He says, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They couldn't even speak peacefully to him. But the story ends with Joseph now speaking kindly to them. He's providing, protecting, caring for his brothers, his enemies, in many ways, family. And it's not about him getting something out of the deal. Kindness. It is very selfless in its nature and pursuing their good. The Apostle Paul talks about this, that as followers of Jesus, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and the fruit of that is kindness. And if that isn't a part of your life, if you let envy dominate, then it might be a fruit of something else. And it should raise some questions. This is a fruit of the Spirit working in our lives, yielding to the Spirit as He does this work in us. Just like envy, 
is always personal. Kindness is always personal. It's not just abstract. You can't just go sit in your room and read the Bible and think, you know what? I feel kind right now. Um, you know, I think I'm good. No, kindness, it takes two to tango. And it's always tangoing. I don't know, tangoing, is that a verb? I don't know. It's always dancing with your rival. Honestly, that's where you see it take shape. The people who aren't your rivals, it's a lot easier to be kind. But this kindness towards your rivals is one of the greatest tests of genuine kindness. And maybe you're thinking, because I thought about this a little bit too, it's like, yeah, Gabe, but this is Joseph we're talking about here. I mean, he was the favorite after all, and then became the second in command of the world, basically at that point in history. And his character is written in scripture to give us an example. I don't think this can be true of me. This can't be my story. And listen, you don't have to be the second most powerful person in the world to no longer let envy dominate over you. The Apostle Paul reminds us that these moments in history are recorded for our own edification, for our own growth in Christ. This can be true of you today as well. So what about this next week? What does that actually look like when you go into work? What does it look like when you're at that family reunion? What does it look like when you're at that next happy hour and the stories start flowing? What do you do? In light of the other questions we've asked earlier, I want you to ask this question. Who do you need to extend God's kindness towards? And I want you to make this personal. I want, I want there to be a name and a face. And think about this next week. Who do you need to extend God's kindness towards? One way that the Holy Spirit actually kills envy in us is through the spiritual discipline of service. These spiritual disciplines are ways in which we train off the spot to be ready on the spot in temptation. And it's a way in which the Spirit of God does His work in our lives. And maybe a simple step of service towards your rival is to write them a note this week and actually compliment them on the excellent thing that you see in your, their life that often sparks bitterness in your heart. And say something like, hey, I just want to say, when I see this in your life, I see the image of God, and it encourages me to be better. Thank you, and may God continue to grow you in your potential. Love, Gabe. Now, if you get a note from someone in here this week, I, you know, <laughs> process that as you will. But listen, <clears throat> you, we all have a name of that. We all have a name, right, that pops into our mind. It kind of makes you twitch when you think about actually writing them a note. Complimenting them feels like there's a part of you dying. And warning, it will. Because you're killing envy. And surgery always hurts, but it's always worth it to remove the cancerous tumor before it takes your life in the end. Who's that person who when you look at where they're excellent, you feel inferior you get angry. You get bitter when you see that they have something better. Write them a note this week. Kindness is always personal. It's not abstract. It takes shape in our everyday lives. And it could be as simple as this one next step in serving your rival. And when you question whether it's worth it, when the pain starts coming or you feel and you start playing the justification game that you really don't envy anybody and you're just fine, thank you very much. And the hard work of really doing the heart work and figuring out who has that place in your life and why you just get irritated when you're around that person. I want you to remember, remember the great lengths at which God went to show his kindness towards you. 
But while we were yet sinners, God became flesh. Kindness became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And then he died for you that he might kill the envy within you. Why don't we together agree to just let envy die and do it one note at a time this next week? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your unbounded love towards us. Thank you that even at the dawn of time when we were envious of you in the garden, we found out that fruit could make us more like you or maybe that you were holding something back from us or that we wanted to be better than you and it made us bitter to think of that thought of not being better. You still chased us with your love and your kindness. God, may your spirit convict us of sin because that sin destroys us from the inside out. May we see the promise of life that righteousness points towards, the life we were designed to live. Really, righteousness is just rightness. It falls in line with the way you've ordered the world. God, may we have the faith to trust you here, even when it hurts. By the power of your spirit, empower us to actually kill envy by chasing kindness. God, by the power of your spirit, may you give us insight to who those people are so that we can begin to be free of the shackles of envy. God, we need you. None of us are exempt here. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.